Welcome to another recording of the Changing Faith Podcast with Mark and Leanne Vaughn. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Thomas Ord, theologian, philosopher, scholar of multidisciplinary studies, and award-winning author. He graduated from Northwest Nazarene College in 1988, got his MDiv at Nazarene Theological Seminary, and then went on to get an MA and a PhD in religion at the Claremont Graduate University. Uh, He has been a professor of theology and is now on the Changing Faith podcast, kind of the zenith of his career. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you, Dr. Ord, for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's always good to talk with folks who are interested in big questions and including changing our minds. Yes, and sometimes scary questions and things you're not so sure you want other people to hear you talking about, but for some reason we actually put it out on the internet. (laughs) Uh, We had spoken earlier with Dr. Ord about uh, changing faith, and I'm reminded of, you know, it's, it's kind of scary to have family and people who are influential on your faith development who have different ideas than you do now hear what you're saying. I, I don't know if uh, we necessarily promote the podcast in all circles. <laughs> and and maybe that's true for you with some of your work. Um, have you are, are you trying not to let everybody hear or uh, do you go ahead and freely I guess you're published, so it's kind of hard not to, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I did my uh, PhD back in the late 90s, and and when I was finished, I I decided I wanted to, you know, publish it because I thought I had some ideas that could help some people. And so I, I tried to get that done, and I realized that very few people um, read what I had out there, the, the stuff that I thought could be helpful. And um, I made a decision in about the year 2000 that I was going to be a person who uh, was public about my views, about my questions. I was going to live, uh, I wasn't going to be one of the, you know, the scholars who lives in an ivory tower, sort of sequestered from the uh, prying ears and eyes of the broader public. Um, I was going to be someone who tried to live in a public way to help people. Because uh, if I didn't live that way, fewer people might be able to get access to the ideas that I thought could help them and help others. And that must be hard. It is hard sometimes. I mean, yeah. sometimes it's super rewarding. I, I had a conversation earlier today with uh, five or six people who are survivors of sexual abuse. Oh, and wow. they found my uh, recent book particularly helpful. And so... You know, when you have you write something and people who are looking for for help find it helpful, it's like incredibly gratifying. It must but be. But there's also there's also price to pay too. Um, you know, I've had I've endured some hardship in my life as well. Speaking of that, can you for our listeners who haven't heard your story before, can you give us um, more detail than maybe we'd find in the books about that journey that you went through? from growing up in a rather conservative Christian background, very similar to to my own and Leanne's, and came to a, a place where that just, it just there's something about it that wasn't right. And can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I grew up in a little town in eastern Washington state called Othello. My parents were very active in the church. I was very active. I had uh, good parents, um, not perfect parents, but they were good. 
Uh, a very important person in my life uh, was the pastor of that church who came when I was in ninth grade. His name was Bob Loon. He stayed uh, 35 years, in fact. Um, I was a person who tried to live my faith as a Christian in high school and college. In fact, I was really hardcore in terms of uh, witnessing to people, studying the Bible, uh, you know, sharing my faith door to door. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ for a while. Um, but then my senior year in college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And for the first time, I heard really good arguments from agnostics and atheists and those of other religious traditions. For me, out of the sake of intellectual honesty, I just had to give up believing in God. I mean, I, I, I wanted to make sense of life, and the reasons I had for believing in God weren't strong, and so I just gave it away. I, um, I told my fiance that I couldn't believe in God anymore, even though she and I were were religion majors and planning to go into ministry of some sort. Here I was now no longer believing in, in, that there was uh, a God. I was not an atheist for all that long. I, I continued at the trying to ask deep questions and search for answers. And I eventually came to the place where I thought it was more plausible than not that there was a God. I wasn't certain, and I'm still not certain today. But um, I think there's good reasons, there's good evidence, there's experience to think that there is a God. For me, the two big issues were uh, my quest to try to, to find meaning in life. I, I didn't think it made much sense to say life had ultimate meaning if there was no God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions about love, that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to be loving and I couldn't ground those intuitions in anything uh, except a God who might be the source of that intuition for love. And so for me, um, belief in God kind of began, or I should say re-belief in God, <laughs> kind of began with those issues. I thought Jesus is pretty cool, um, but that was about as deep as my faith went. Um, over the years, that has developed in certain ways, but I still today don't, I'm not certain that there is a God. I think uh, there are good reasons to think there's a God, but I'm not absolutely certain. How common would you say your experience is to other folks that went through seminary with you? I think a lot of people ask questions, including people who are in pastoral ministry, uh, maybe not quite to the level I have, but there are a lot of people seeking today, and even people who aren't in ministry of some sort. I encounter many, many who have grown dissatisfied with some of the beliefs and ideas they were handed, either intentionally or unintentionally, by you know those in their their past. Um, unfortunately, there are many pastors who have deep questions, but don't feel free or confident enough or courageous enough to ask those questions for fear of losing their jobs. Is that something you know personally? 
Well, I do know pastors who've lost their jobs over this, and and I myself was laid off uh, from my position as a university professor. I was um, a professor back at my alma mater and was there for about 15 years when um, a president laid me off um, in a way that I think was unjust, and others do as well. The technical reason I was laid off was that there was a dip in enrollment but the real reason was is that um, he was getting pressure from conservative and fundamentalists and uh, denominational leaders who were threatened by some of the things I said and some of the influence I had. But yet you also have your champions at the uh, general church level too, right? I do, yes. Um, it's you know obviously gratifying when people say that they've been helped by what you do, Um you know, it's funny you say that. A memory sh- shot through my head uh, about five years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer, when I was still a professor at, at Northwest Nazarene University. I went to a um, what we call a district pastors and spouses retreat. And it's one of these things where, you know, once a year, the um, the maybe 50 or so pastors get together and, you know, they they get inspired or they learn something and they, you know, deepen some connections. And I came to this particular uh, event. Uh, I'd not been to it before, but I knew some people. Um, and I walked in the room, and I'll never forget this. I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but I'll tell it anyway. Uh, I walked in the room at the back of the room, and people saw me enter. And the the event the that particular session closed and then people came up to me and started talking to me and I I talked for maybe half hour and I realized that for some people in the room I was the antichrist oh. you know it was it was as uh, as if I had horns some people said some really nasty things to me uh, uh, later on and 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 I just knew some of the people in the room had written letters that were not very nice. But there were other people in the room who treated me like the Messiah. You know, like I was the hope for them to find a place in this denomination. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm the the Messiah or the Antichrist. But um, I do think that for for many, I have become uh, either a a symbol of what's wrong with the church or a a symbol of what might be right about the church. (laughs) That's a hard place to be in. I I can really relate to that. we currently are not in the uh, Nazarene Church. Um, a, a lot of it has to do with just not not being able to connect, uh, to feel like we're on the same page and working in the same direction in mm-hmm. the, a, a church with the kind of the grassroots, more conservative, more leaning toward the fundamentalist and, and popular evangelical type of themes. We um, mm-hmm. found, found ourselves in an Anglican church presently. Um, and and yeah. very comfortable there, uh, which I, I guess you you would understand that having worked with Polkinghorne and read read some of the other Anglican authors that uh, we also have been influenced by. Definitely, I, think I mean, a, that's one of the. Oh, go ahead. At one at some point, having to make that decision of you know if we're going through these questions and try and starting to have different belief sets, are we doing more harm than good to stay? in the church community that we are, you know, if we're going to raise questions in people's minds that that they aren't comfortable with or are ready to ask yet. Um, so that's something that we kind of had to consider as we looked at where we're worshiping and who we're surrounding ourselves with. 
Yeah, I think that's beautiful because, you know, for me, what matters most in my whole life is that I want to be a person who lives a life of love. And I think that sometimes there are people in our our uh, circles of influence, including churches, who can't yet handle some of the questions we're asking, mm-hmm. can't quite grasp that, and and they're not ready. And sometimes the loving thing is just to sort of step back and disengage and find another community. I mean, other times it is to be a prophetic word and try to help people to move, but I think wisdom comes in discerning what's the right move given the circumstances and the people involved. Wow. That's very affirming, and thank you for saying that. That's good for me to hear right now. And and probably for a lot of people who would be listening to a podcast like this, I would guess, too. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I've always been a very ecumenical kind of guy. Uh, I have a, there's things I like about the Church of the Nazarene, and of course I have personal connections and a history, and um, but there's also lots of good things going on in other traditions, and um, I think we need to be open to following God's leading wherever that may lead. Yeah, even if it's not where you ever expected it. Exactly, yeah. Yep. So in talking about your journey, I'm not hearing a story like that of the people you mentioned in the the books I'm familiar with. I, I've read The Uncontrolling Love of God, and more recently, God Can't. And in there, you're really relating to the stories of people whose difficulty with belief comes from really bad things, um, often very personal experience of a bad things. So was that something that was going on in the back of your mind as you went through your journey, or is this something that you've kind of um, seen in others and seen as important and taken on as your own um, subject to write about? Well, I have been thinking about the questions of evil probably since I was in junior high um, and trying to make sense of them in various ways. I had a streak uh, when I was about 19 years old when six people in my life that were pretty important died for various different reasons. And that kind of brought some of my thinking to a head. Um, I had come to this view that I currently have that God's love is inherently uncontrolling, and therefore God simply can't prevent evil single-handedly. I came to that in the early 2000s and uh, published that in, you know, some books that wasn't, they weren't directly on that subject. So when I have gone through more recent difficulties, as I was mentioning earlier, getting laid off and that being a a national story and everything— I had this view of God already in place in me, and it was actually extremely helpful because I didn't walk around blaming God for what was happening or, um, you know, thinking God was punishing me or thinking that this was a part of some mysterious divine plan or, you know, God was trying to develop my character by allowing these horrible things. Um, This view of God was really helpful and sustained me. But in writing this newest book, God Can't, I wanted to take these ideas and present them in a more accessible way, the kind of using real stories and illustrations that, you know, people could understand even if they don't have a theology degree. Yeah, I did notice that difference that uh, in reading the second book, um, it'd been a while, I guess a couple of years since I'd read The Uncontrolling Love of God, so I've had to go back and, and read some of it. 
and it's a huge difference. You you have notes in Uncontrolling Love of God on every page, it seems, sometimes <laughs> a significant portion of the page because you're really citing uh, sources and outside authorities for your argument, whereas in God Can't, this is much more written to a, well, something that could be received by a person who's actually hurting at the moment. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's one way to look at it is that God can't is the more accessible version of the main idea in the uncontrolling love of God. But, you know, this is my, I can't remember, something like 25th book. And my wife keeps telling me, you know, Tom, you need to write a book that like will actually sell copies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Things that wives tell us, yes. (laughs) That's right. What she means by that is that, you know, most, a lot of my books have been more academic or they've been aimed at a pretty, particularly narrow audience. In fact, she, she had a a label for this. She said, Tom, you need to write a Barnes and Noble book by (laughs) which she meant the kind of book you could pick up at Barnes and Noble and understand, and you didn't have to have a degree in philosophy or theology or whatever. So, so um, go ahead. To a totally different audience. Yes, a, a different audience. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was actually a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work to change your writing style. It really is. Um, well, but it, I've been trying to do that over the years and writing different kinds of books. And so, yeah. So does your wife know that with 75 reviews on Amazon, you have a five-star rating? with this book. <laughs> yeah, she does know that. Okay. <laughs> and were you sure to make sure she saw? <laughs> Congratulations on the, on the new book. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It's good. It's fun to have a bestseller. Yes. And, and so, you go ahead. Um, so this is the only book of yours that I've read and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, Great. So probably one thing that I missed by not reading The Uncontrolling Love of God is that putting this into kind of historical Christian context and like, you know, there, I, w- I was, I guess through the book, I was wondering, you know, is this something that historically has been an idea in the church or is this a new way of thinking about God? Is there any historical precedent for, for your ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the Wesleyan theological tradition has done a better job than most in trying to place the issues of love as central. Not only God is love, but also that we ought to be loving people. But the Wesleyan theological tradition, at least 99.9% in that tradition, don't go quite as far as I do in talking about real limits to God's power because of God's love. Now, there has been a movement in uh, contemporary theology called process theology, and they've they've been fairly well known for wanting to make a more radical move toward rethinking what God can do, denying God's omnipotence. And there are various ways that process theologians do that. None of them do it quite the way I do it. So maybe the scary answer to your your question is that I don't think there's anybody who has quite the same theology as I propose in this book. There's some similarities in various places. Um, I don't want to say this like is totally brand new and has no connection to any theology previous. But I also don't want to say it's just like something else that's come before because it's not. Does that 
does that come with some trepidation to look at the history of the church over two millennia with the church fathers and, and many writers and theologians and think that you have something original or a, a unique, um, a unique yeah, revelation? Come, yeah, it can come across as real cocky, can't it? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. you, you know what I'm getting at. I I do, yeah. Um, and a lot of people wonder that, especially people who've given a lot of their time to studying the tradition. You know, who are you to think that you've got a new way of thinking about God? Um, you know, are you smarter than everybody else? Or, you know, did God give you a special message? And I don't think either of those are true. I don't claim to be smarter than everybody or this is somehow, you know, plopped into my head from God or something like that. However, um, I do think that God continues to reveal and that God continues to be active. And uh, I think probably a combination of things have come together to bring me to this place to propose this different idea of God. I actually think this idea fits well with the biblical witness, but most people have come to the Bible with a particular view of God in mind, read the Bible, and assumed that was the God that they read in the Bible. In fact, I will go so far as to claim this. The key idea in God can't is that God never and simply can't single-handedly bring about some outcome, that God's love is relational and God calls creatures to cooperate. I can't find a single verse in the entire Bible that explicitly says God alone brought about some result and creatures had no input whatsoever. Now, there are definitely some passages that say God did something and creatures aren't mentioned, but none that explicitly rule out any creaturely cooperation at any level whatsoever. And that includes God creating the world, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, resurrection of Jesus, etc. Um, now, what has ha typically happened is not only the average person on the street, but even many trained scholars have come to the Bible with a particular notion of God's power in mind, usually in the back of their mind, and they've read statements like God did X or God did Y, and they have, at least in some cases, assumed that God did it single-handedly, when the text doesn't require us to think that. I'm proposing that we read the Bible in a different way, and it's a way that I think fits the Bible very well, especially if you begin with the notion that God is a God of love. And, and something interesting about your, your argument is that it's not just thinking, intelligent life forms that you're applying this to. You're applying it to every single aspect of creation, including inanimate aspects to creation? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm saying that God's love is self-giving and others empowering not only to humans— not only to other animals, not only to worms and insects and birds, not only to cells, muscles, and organs, but even to the smallest units of reality, that God can't control anyone or anything because God loves everyone and everything. And it, it seems like that argument is necessitated by the the problem of evil that that's where it comes from you, you look at the world and we have uh what, what's been referred to as theodicy and this is a solution to that problem 
Do you feel like it comes more from a logical exercise than from the scripture itself? I do think that the problem of evil ha- was the primary impetus, the primary spark to get me thinking this direction. But then after I started thinking this direction, I started realizing that this way of thinking helps overcome a whole host of other questions many people have. For instance, um, many people have tried to figure out why the Bible has different ideas of God in it, why it's not totally inerrant in all respects. If God's a God of love— and if God thinks it's important that we understand something about God, that God is revealed in some way, and if God is so powerful that God can guarantee certain outcomes, then why would we have a biblical text that has inconsistencies or tensions or contradictions or even errors in it? One would think that would be counterproductive to God's uh, desire to be self-revealed. However, if you have a view that says that God can't control creatures and creation, but communicates with them, then you have the rationale to understand how we can have a Bible that's inspired by God, but not without error, not without different views of God, not without some contradictions. Um, I could go on and on about these different kinds of examples here, but let me just throw one other one. I don't know you very well, Mark, but am I correct in say, thinking that you're a physician? That's correct. So when, when physicians think about uh, their healing their healing arts and what might or might not work in trying to help people get better, they try to take into account, at least as far as I know, you're the expert here, but they try to take into account all kinds of factors in the person's body, the way things interact, the kinds of tools or medicines we might use. I don't think doctors, at least if they're honest, ever feel like they can totally control what's going on. Some things they may feel like they have more power over, more influence on, but there's always some elements that are uncontrollable. Right. If one then thinks that this uncontrollability of even the molecular, the you know, the the blood, the cells, the muscles, the organs, etc., that might be an indication that God is not even controlling at that level. And we can take seriously then, I think, the assumptions most physicians have that they're working with bodies and tissues and things that have uh, some power and agency that, that they can't control entirely, and I'm proposing even God can't control entirely. Although I would hope that he could have more influence <laughs> um, <laughs> through mechanisms that we can't understand. Sure, sure. There's always going to be some questions that, you know, we're not going to, there's, there's going to be factors, actors, and agencies that we can't account for, probably ever, at least not yet, but probably ever. Um, you know, if you have the view that I do, that God is active at all levels of reality, then that means God can inspire physicians, but also God can work with muscles and cells, and there can be a certain degree of responsiveness, or the conditions may be aligned correctly or incorrectly for the kind of healing that God wants. Okay. There are a lot of parts of the book that I, I, I wonder about in reading it. And do you expect that over time, some of these things may change that in future books, it, it's an evolving understanding? Sure, sure. 
Yeah, that's kind of the way life is. I mean, you, as a people who are doing a, prod, a podcast on changing our minds and change, you know that change is healthy. In fact, I worry when people say they, they're not going to change because uh, growth requires change. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't expect it to do a radical 180 and dismiss everything in the book. But uh, I might have some change of mind on some of these ideas, or I might figure out better language to articulate them, or uh, there will definitely definitely be changes to some degree. And what are the conversations like in among your peers? Um, I, I understand you're a part of an organization that uh, promotes, I believe it's open theology. Uh, I heard you on another podcast with, a, I believe it was another theologian. Yeah, I'm an open and relational theo- theologian. And is there a group that meets where you guys discuss things like this? Yeah, I'm involved in many scholarly societies, and and uh, so that's one of the privileges of of uh, my life of being able to have conversations at different levels and different kinds of groups. I I'm a, a member of the International Sci- uh, Society for Science and Religion. I'm uh, past president of the Wesleyan Theological Society. But the one that I think you might be talking about is uh, on open and relational theology. Yeah, I believe that's and, it. Uh, yeah. This is a, a view that says that God is in relationship with us such that uh, we not only are affected by God, but we have a real influence upon God. In fact, not just us. All creation influences God. And the open part, uh, relates to a, a different way of thinking about God's relationship to time. A lot of people have thought that God sort of stands outside of time, seeing the beginning and end all at once. Even though that view isn't explicitly in the Bible, and I think the Bible uh, doesn't uh, support that view well, uh, many people have thought that's how God relates to time. Open theists think that God experiences time moment by moment, kind of like how we experience time moment by moment. And that means that the past is really past for God, just like it is for us. And the future is really open and future and undecided for God and for us. And that means that uh, there's this kind of dynamism that can go on. It, It means, for instance, that God can't know with absolute certainty everything that will happen in the future because the future hasn't yet happened for God to know. So um, it changes the way you think about some of these ideas that many people have had about God. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think it's I interesting. Think- I um, to, to kind of counterbalance reading your book, I decided to do some research, and you know, I think I can, I can kind of narrow in and—, and read things for confirmation bias, you know, of of the direction that I'm going in my faith. And so I found Uh a podcast that it was a sermon by, um, I guess it'd be a new Calvinist that was very, very, um, you know, God is completely in control. And, and he knew, you know, before he created the world, exactly what was going to happen to us. And so his, his sermon was on why he is not then held guilty and responsible for the bad things that happen in our life. And, you know, he talked about, interesting. you know, if, if your child is, is raped, he knew that before the creation of the world that that would happen, but he, he decided to let that happen because of his love for your child and, and the growth that can happen, you know, to her coming out of that kind of a situation. Um, but then the person who 
who was the um, the rapist, is held responsible because he wasn't doing it out of love like God was. He was doing it out of of his own evil desires, and so he is held responsible for doing that thing that that God preordained him to do. It seemed like such a circular argument, and as the pastor was was preaching this, he kept almost apologetically saying, I don't understand this. This isn't basically saying this isn't the way I would have set up the world, but who am I to question God? And that that's, yeah. that's the way you have to read the Bible, because that's what the Bible says. And even though we don't understand it, His ways are greater than ours, and so we're just going to accept that He's not responsible, or He's not guilty for the evil things that happen, but we are as humans because we're just carrying out His plan with evil intentions. And and that's such a, a dark way of looking at the world, and and just a God who who is very hard to un- think about having a, a loving relationship with. Whereas the, exactly. you know, the, the God that you present is somebody who, a God who I can actually appreciate. And, and I th- yeah, I, I, it's just a much more palatable way to look at God and, and faith. Yeah. I'm glad you think that. I mean, I, you and I are not the only ones I speak in lots of universities and churches and conferences, and when I present this way of looking at God, this open and relational view, I get tons of people who come up to me afterwards saying, you know, expressing their thanks. Many of them will say to me, what you just articulated is kind of what I've been thinking for a long time, but really didn't have the courage to say it or didn't have the words to articulate it very well. You know, thank you for doing that. I think there's lots of people who are just dissatisfied with that Calvinist God who predetermined and foreknew everything that was going to happen. And, and and what really kills me, and I love that you said that this preacher kept apologizing for not understanding of it, then saying, you know, but, you know, who are we to question God? Mm-hmm. Uh, that just, that just, if I was a, if I was a cussing man, I would start cussing right now. That yeah. just, <laughs> if that just drives me bananas. Cause basically what this is being said is this is the way it is. Don't question it. Turn off your brain. If it doesn't right. make sense to you, you know, don't question it. Cause you're just a mere mortal and God is God. And of course we know that this particular view of God is the right one because it's the one that I'm telling you. And exactly. uh, yes. it just, uh, we, we yeah, do have bugs. interactions with those people that believe Sometimes. Yeah, so do I. So do I. (laughs) And the real challenge comes with, you know, Jesus' prayer in John 17 was that we would have unity and that's what would mark us as being real. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we relate to the people who have thoughts that are just, it's, it's as if it's a different God. I remember growing up in a, in a family where every other religion uh, that worshiped God, we were told that uh, it was not the same God. Yeah. And now <laughs> that's that's Christians who are believing a different God. How yep. do how do we have unity when we have beliefs so different? Are are these beliefs that important or do we need to find something uh, that's common and be able to still call each other brothers and sisters? It's very hard. It's very hard um, because these aren't just disagreements about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. You know, these are disagreements about our fundamental views of reality and God. And, um, you know, I just can't buy the idea that God causes or allows rape. 
I just don't buy it. And I don't think others ought to either. Uh, but when my fellow brothers or sisters from a more Calvinist tradition stand up and say what you've mentioned, you know, they do want to buy it. In fact, they find comfort in that view. And I just don't find it comfortable at all. What helps me, and I'm, I don't have the answer for you, uh, Mark, but I'll tell you what helps me. Well, with me. that, we'll be coming back next week. <laughs> <laughs> what helps me is to rem- is to go back to what I said earlier in our discussion, that I don't know things with certainty. I am so convinced that God is a God of love that I'm trying to live my life as a loving person. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong about a lot of things. And even though I'm so committed to this view of God that I think I would be willing to die for it, I also have to, with humility, admit that I could be wrong, and therefore I need to allow for other possibilities and other views. I also um, want want to be a person that is accepting of perspectives because different perspectives because I want other people to consider the perspective I put on the table um, you know I believe that the particular view I have of God is superior in particular ways and more reasonable and presents a more loving and a more winsome and more etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, I don't want people to shut me out of the conversation uh, at the at the beginning so I don't want to shut others out of the conversation. And so there, there are various there are various approaches I take to this that don't answer your question, Mark. But it does it does prompt me to want to be open to other perspectives and to have a generous orthodoxy. Hmm. That is good. And I like that. Um, you know, it, it can thinking like this can get caught up so much in just theology and and these philosophical questions. But but that you said that that it prompts you to live a life of love. And so even if we someday realize, you know, that that view of God is not the right view of God, it's still uh, impacting your life and the way that you live in a healthy, good way, that no matter how you believe in God, that's that's the right way that we should live. You know, and and thinking about that, um, you know, praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, that's that's how we should live, that we're trying to make this place more heavenly just by the love that we express to, to other people, no matter what our view of God is. So, so it's good that there's a practical aspect of, of your ideas. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of practical aspects. In fact, I think the ideas that I present fit better with the way we live our lives than most of the alternatives. I'll, I'm tempted to say all of them, but I haven't encountered all of them yet. Um you know, even take, you know, I, I mentioned briefly open theology and the idea that God can't know the future with certainty because the future yet hasn't been decided uh, and that God experiences time like we do. Most people I know who are Christians who pray petitionary prayers asking God to do something, pray their prayers assuming that the future hasn't yet been settled assuming that God might respond in some way and act differently because of their prayer. That is living as if you're an open and relational theologian, even though you may think God is outside of time. 
so many of the general practices Christians do in their lives fit the open and relational perspective far better than the alternatives. That's interesting. Yeah. And then with that, also, I would point out that uh, my favorite chapter of God Can't, the last chapter, really does bring us to uh, working together with God to accomplish his kingdom in this world. You, you quoted St. Teresa of, is it Avila or Avila or Avila? Uh, I can't quote it myself off my head, top of my head, but that it is our hands and our feet that are doing his work in this world. Um, that fits so much with the theme of God can't. Not, not so much what God can't do, but what we can on his behalf. Yes, yes. Uh, I think of it as God being the inspiration and the power behind the good and love that we do in the world. Um, you know, I sometimes think about two of the most influential people of the 20th century, Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. Both of them in, were so influential, not because they had incredibly strong muscles, but because they were able to influence others, one for good, the other for evil. Um, I think of God as being that kind of influencer always for good, but even to a far greater extent than Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, because God is omnipresent. <laughs> God's everywhere. And God is the source, the power, the inspiration, the oomph, the intuition, the nudge behind all the good that we do as we respond to God's call to love in our lives. So we can be God's uh, figurative hands and feet because God has inspired us to live lives of love. I think that would be a good place to stop with that inspirational statement uh, for us to actually take what we know to do and do it for the sake of God's love to others. Thank you, Dr. Ord, for joining us. Now, where can people find you and what uh, do you have coming up next? Well, probably the best place to go is my website, which is my full name, Thomas J. J. A. Y. Ord, O-O-R-D dot com. That uh, gives you information on books I've written and essays I write. And, and if you look around long enough, you'll see links to my future speaking engagements. And you can sign up for my you know, newsletter, all that sort of thing. Uh, but I do appreciate this conversation and the chance to talk about uh, this book, God Can't. And of course, I'd love for your listeners to consider getting a copy of that book. Um, if you have any listeners who just financially aren't at the place where they can afford it, uh, they can send me an email and I'll send them a complimentary e-copy. Um, I really care that these ideas get out in the world to help people. And so I'm willing to do that. Excellent. Very good. And then we'll also have, for those that don't take that route, they'll be able to use the uh, Amazon affiliate link on our website uh, at changingfaith.com also. But thank you so much for doing that, for giving the book to people, because it is, I can see how it'd be very helpful for people, well, just like you write about in the book, people who are helped by your uh, Uncontrolling Love of God book and having that change of paradigm. Yeah, I mean, people from all walks of life and all professions are, have questions about God and evil. So I'm hoping this book can help that diverse set of people. Okay, again, thank you so much. And yeah, thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. We look forward to future conversations with you with uh, other books or follow up on this same one. So until next time, 
Dr. Ward and Leanne and myself telling all of you to continue in the faith that you do have and be comforted as it is changing. Mm-hmm.